Bigfoot Society would like to thank the following sponsors for helping make the podcast possible. The Singular Fortean Society has combined open and honest paranormal investigation and journalism since 2016. Visit the Society at Singular Fortean for all the latest weird news and more. Come with us and investigate the impossible. Lauren Smith is the hostess for Nightcaller's Bigfoot Radio, which has been on air for over a decade and has completed over 300 shows. Lauren brings with her a unique viewpoint given that she is not only the daughter of one of the veteran female Bigfoot researchers in the South, but she has been conducting field research since she was a preteen some 20 years ago. Nightcallers is a Bigfoot world favorite and along with interviewing researchers and witnesses often features interviews with guests from the documentary film and entertainment industry. Lauren also does a vidcast segment called Nightcallers which features real encounters sent in by viewers. You can find all of this and more at nightcallersproductions.com. On this episode of the Bigfoot Society podcast, I have the pleasure of talking to cryptozoologist Ken Gearhart about all sorts of things to do with Bigfoot, different cryptids. We have some great audience questions in this episode, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. We talk about everything from should the Chupacabra be renamed to are there cryptids in Canada? So sit back relax, get something to drink, something to eat, make yourself comfortable, and enjoy this conversation with cryptozoologist Ken Gearhart. All right, welcome everyone to Bigfoot Society. Uh, We have a great interview for you all tonight and for the ones that are listening on the podcast later on. so we have a few things that we want to discuss definitely um first thing is uh next week we have a great show coming up i want to mention that as well we have our friend ashers uh and we're gonna be talking about all sorts of fun thing uh we're gonna be talking about different cryptids i think we're gonna be talking about uh maybe some uh uh, land between the lakes and maybe some Mothman as well and all sorts of good stuff. So you'll want to tune in next week as well. Uh, but this week we have a very awesome uh, interview. Uh, before I go into that, I want to make sure that you can uh, I, I see a few people hanging out with us. If you can see or if you can hear my voice rather, uh, go ahead and let me know in the chat. That sounds good to go uh, just to make sure that um, the audio is good. All right. And we got a few people hanging out. Let's just shout that as well. We got Aaron from Hey Strangers, yay, Jeremiah. Uh, and we got uh, Bigfoot Non, awesome. But uh, yeah, Hey Strangers, just let me know if uh, it sounds good. Uh, he says, handsome as heck. Well, uh, thanks, buddy. Just let me know if the audio is good. <laughs> but I, I appreciate that. Uh, once uh, we hear that the audio is good, then we'll be chugging along here. Um, Let's see. I'll start giving a uh, a bio for our guest tonight. We've got Mr. Ken Gearhart. Uh, he's a widely recognized cryptozoologist and field investigator for the Center for Fortean Zoology, as well as a fellow of the Pangea Institute and consultant for several research organizations. Of course, you've seen him on many different shows. Uh, some that come to mind would be Missing in Alaska, Monster Quest, among others. And he's also been an adventurer around the world. He's gone to some places uh, such as the Amazon, the Galapagos, the Australian Outback, in many different places, uh, Stonehenge, Machu Picchu, and the list goes on and on. 
Uh, but we're going to bring him on in a uh, minute. But just to let you know, this interview will go for about an hour. I've got some uh, questions to ask Ken. And then uh, about halfway through, we'll bring uh, in some audience questions. So if you have any um, questions for Ken, which I hope you do, definitely put those in the comment section and make sure you put, um, let me put the banner here. Use the word question at the beginning so that you know that, uh, or rather so that it's easy for me to see it. So cool. Let me go back to, uh, and we got uh, Asher's hanging out here. Hey, buddy. Good to see you as well. But let's, uh, without further ado here, let's bring my friend uh, Ken into the stage. And we will, there we go. Hello, Ken. How's it going? Good evening, Jeremiah. I'm doing well <laughs> this evening. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. It's uh, pretty nice and sunny up here in Iowa, so I can't complain. And I get to talk about uh, cryptozoology and Bigfoot on a Friday night, which is my highlight of the week. Always a good some, thing. Uh, some yep. cool people. So uh, I got a question. We already went over your bio. I think you, you heard that you down in the green room. Uh, so our listeners that are hanging out with us, they know exactly what they're in for. But most people have heard of uh, uh, you can, I would imagine, as well. Um, I had the privilege of meeting Ken a little bit at the Van Meter Visitor Festival, uh, which was a real treat. Uh, that was very cool uh, to see you hanging out there with all your books. And uh, I got my copy of The Essential Guide to Bigfoot, uh, which is, you know, when I'm talking to people and they're like, man, what book should I get? And I'm like, literally, you need to get this book by Ken because it is so good. It's got everything in one uh, handy book and it's very easy to read. So thank you for putting that together. Definitely for the community. It's very cool. Ken. Thank you, Jeremiah. I appreciate yeah. the kind words. I'm very, very proud of the book. And, uh, you know, it's not what I tell people is that, you know, even though my name's on the cover, I mean, there were a lot of people that I interviewed and. Sure borrowed from Peter Byrne was gracious to write the forward, of course. And I interviewed, mm. you know, Meldrum, Berrickman, Coleman, Stuford, uh, Prescott, Perez. I mean, everyone, Steenberg, everyone in the field that I thought had been putting a lot of, had put a lot of time and years into research because they're all, you know, there are a lot of many great resources in the field in terms of researchers with longevity and, that have really put a lot of effort into it. So totally. And it, it puts them all together. I love that. Well, I want, I, I like the question to start out with uh, usually is, was there a point in your life that set you down this road to cryptozoology? There must've been something that just set you off in your earlier years. Is there anything that comes to mind? Yeah, that's probably the, the number one question most people yeah. ask me. It is kind of an unconventional uh, life choice, and I feel very blessed to have had the opportunity to pursue it. I didn't plan on becoming a cryptozoologist when I was a kid. It wasn't something I thought was possible. But, um, you know, when I was a kid, about eight or nine years old, uh, you know, my father was a forestry professor, uh, had a very scientific upbringing in terms of his influence. He's a PhD, and we spent a lot of time in the woods and so I love the outdoors and critters, creatures. Uh, my first pet was a Cayman alligator. I oh, wow. collected snakes and salamanders and everything. And so I loved, I already loved animals and kind of all kinds of critters. Uh, but I also loved monster movies. You know, I grew up on Godzilla and, you know, all those 
awesome. cheesy 50s so you know, monster movies, Creature from the Black Lagoon and all that. So when I first heard about cryptozoology and Bigfoot when I was about eight or nine years old, I mean, it was like it sounded like the perfect synthesis of two things I loved, animals and monsters. And because um, you, you get a little bit of both uh, in terms of the things that we investigate here. But totally, um, totally. Yeah. And then about oh, the, so cool. around that same time, and this was about 1976, um, you know, I also saw the Minnesota Iceman exhibit at the Minnesota oh, wow. State Fair, and that cool. was influential. And then there were a lot of things going on on TV with Bigfoot. There was In Search Of and Legend of Boggy Creek and Six Million Dollar Man. And so I think all oh. of that just kind of hit me <laughs> at the same time. But what was really huge for me was my mother. Uh, she mm. passed when I was younger, but okay. before she did, um, we spent many years traveling together and she took me all over the world and she encouraged my interest in uh, the Yeti and Mothman and different things. And when I was 15 years old, uh, we actually went to Loch Ness and I got to attempt field research at a young age. So it's just something I've always oh, been yeah. passionate about. And, um, you know, I didn't pursue it as a career in, until maybe 20 years ago when I, you know, just kind of went, went, all, went all in. And uh, so... Yeah, there's a lot of um, if if you want to hear more about his his younger years, there's some really cool tidbits that you bring out in the, the book, specifically this one, The Essential Guide to Bigfoot. I mean, you talk about like uh, uh, having a film uh, filming video around Loch Ness at around age 15. Right. I, I want to say that's what it calls out. But then uh, also it's very cool that you call out another fact uh, is that you were born about a week or so before the Patterson Gimlin film, correct? In '67, like that's really that's a cool connection. For, I was born on modern a day Friday, to back there. Yeah, that, I think that was another thing I forgot to mention. I was born on Friday the 13th, October uh, uh, Friday 13th, the 13th, yeah, 1967, one week before the Patterson film. So when I first heard about the Patterson film and I think the first TV show I saw in the seventies that talked about it. And when they mentioned the date that it was filmed, I almost felt like a, a strange connection because it was so close to, to the day I was born. So mm. just a week, a week apart. So that's awesome. That is awesome. Uh, you were involved with the expedition for the Trinity Alps salamander uh, mm -hmm. this year. Uh, actually it would be last summer, right? Because it was when uh, a lot of different guys were filming documentaries around the Bluff Creek area. And uh, you can see yourself in some of those, but uh, what kind of things did you take away from that expedition where you're looking for the, the Trinity Alps uh, salamander out there? Yeah. Thanks for mentioning that. That was yeah, in yeah. the first, the first week of July. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it was, uh, I really owe a huge debt of gratitude to Jamie Wayne uh, and the rest of the guys in the Bluff Creek project, because sure. they, you know, they were, they're in that area and, uh, the, the giant salamanders, Trinity giant salamanders have always kind of been an interesting mystery within a mystery in the Bigfoot world, because in some of these Bigfoot books where people were out looking for Bigfoot evidence in the fifties and sixties, they would hear about giant monstrous salamanders that, you know, and sometimes they would take a... A little side trip and say, okay, let's, well, let's look for these salamanders too. So, uh, so I'd always wanted, this has always been on my bucket list. I love amphibians awesome. and all salamanders and it's an interesting cryptid. It's a viable possibility that there could be a monstrous species of salamander up in this region. That's maybe a few feet long. It's not impossible. Wow. That's so, wild. Uh, you have native American traditions about them. Um, and you have some sightings that were 
logged by different people through the years. So, um, so yeah, we went up there, Bluff Creek Project, Jamie Wayne in particular, uh, scouted out a location. Uh, we were on the Trinity River for several days. I brought a group from Texas and Oklahoma that included uh, a couple of fellow Bigfoot researchers that are also interested in the salamanders. Uh, Jim mm. Whitehead of Oklahoma, who's a brilliant uh, guy, in especially in terms of salamanders and amphibian biology. And then we had uh, Jason Concy, who's a Bigfoot researcher slash elephant trainer from uh, east texas and then daniel oh, that's cool daniel allen jones who's a really excellent right. vid videographer exactly. and investigates bigfoot ufos and all kinds of things so um we actually we tried to be as scientific as possible i interviewed uh you know i work with the san antonio zoo so i had access to yep. research field biologists that actually go out and do surveys for giant salamanders in asia and stuff and they oh, told us cool. you know how to, we had a lot of gadgets, underwater cameras. Uh, uh, Jamie had this little underwater drone that we could pilot around. And so it was a really amazing experience. We didn't find any evidence of giant salamanders, only okay. the standard <laughs> giant Pacific salamanders, which are really ah. only about 18 inches, 13 to 18 inches long. Um, but we saw some amazing habitat, the Trinity River. We were up in some pretty remote areas in the Trinity National Forest. And... Um, and then, you know, the last weekend, we, uh, the cherry on the cake was we got to go to the Patterson-Gimlin film exactly. site with yeah. the Death Creek Project and camp out at Laos Camp with Alex so and, cool. and uh, all those, you know, lo lots of really interesting and exciting people. Oh, so, for uh, sure. Yeah, just a, a very cool. Uh, it, it's almost, I think, going to be a, a time that people in future generations will look back at and be like, Oh my goodness, you had like uh Gearhart and uh Petikoff and uh Hieronymus there and all these guys, and it's like just it'll it'll be weird uh how it's talked about in the future, I think. But um speaking of the San Antonio Zoo, uh a question I did have on my list was you led the Chupacabra chat at the San Antonio Zoo during the festival de animals, which I'm probably mispronouncing, but yeah, um, yeah close, close enough. So what was that experience? What is, what is that like leading a talk about the Chupacabra to maybe a group of people that are not like super into cryptozoology? Like how was that experience? Um, you know, it's always fun. I always enjoy talking about cryptozoology, no matter who the audience is, if they're willing to, to listen and, and uh, put up with me. So um yeah, the uh, the the chupacabra exhibit at the zoo actually was not my idea. I, I I'm I like to think that I may have indirectly influenced them because they they know I've been volunteering there for years and they know what I do and who I am. But um, the San Antonio Zoo, I should say, is has a long history uh, in connection to the field of cryptozoology, dating back to Tom uh -huh. Slick in the late 1950s. Interesting. He, he uh, he was on the board of directors for the San Antonio Zoo, and they helped him sponsor his his first Yeti expedition in Nepal. So um, with Peter Byrne, um, and then in the 1970s. So I like to tell people at the San Antonio Zoo, we're the only zoo that's ever searched for the Yeti. You know, as that's far awesome. as I know, or yeah, any yeah, official yeah. official cryptid. And then in the 1970s, there was a cryptid in South Texas called the Big Bird, Big Thunderbird, that was flying around, and the San Antonio Zoo was involved in that and then in the when the quote-unquote chupacabras began appearing in the united states in 2004 
just outside of San Antonio, then the first place they brought the remains of this so-called chupacabra was to the San Antonio Zoo to get evaluated. So, That's awesome. Wow. So the zoo's cool. had a long history with cryptozoology. And, um, but yeah, it was fun doing the talks. Um, you know, the way it was set up, I was kind of just out in the festival in the zoo in a, at a station with a microphone. And okay. I had a scheduled speech time, but there, you know, there weren't always because I gave several talks throughout the day, there weren't always people there when I was about ready to start. So <laughs> I would just kind of yep. start talking to the people standing by the flamingos and, hey, uh, <laughs> this yep. is the legend of the chupacabra. We have one on exhibit here. And sometimes <laughs> they awesome. just stick around for a few minutes, but uh, it was fun. And yeah, they have they have no idea who like, yeah. That that's so cool. That is so cool. So it sounds like actually, if you're into cryptozoology, the San Antonio Zoo should be on your list of places to visit, just for history and for sweet chupacabra exhibit. So that's and I'm rocking. there for a couple hours, at least a couple hours every week, and so I'm yeah, always happy go. to to give tours or you know I, I interpret different exhibits, bears, komodo dragons, or okapi or whatever. So. I love the uh, episodes you've done with Lyle, uh, the American Monster Tour. Um, are there, I know currently you have a DVD out where you can get two of those episodes on it. Um, are there plans to maybe come out with uh, further episodes or um, is that, was that kind of like a one-off type thing? Well, you know, we actually, it's a project we started a few years ago. It's taken us a long time to get mm. to this point because Lyle and I are both very busy with lots of different juggling, a lot of different projects at any given time. And it's a, you know, putting together a documentary is, you know, as well, you know, many of your friends do that, <laughs> Alex and others. It's yeah, a very, it takes a while. Seth Breedlove. I mean, it's a very time consuming thing. So, um, but, uh, you know, we actually storyboarded several episodes and we actually, since the, the theme of the show is kind of like, it's like a rock tour, but you're looking for cryptids. <clears throat> since Lyle and I have both right. been touring musicians, we actually exactly. had this idea to do like American monster tour concert shirts with like all the dates and the cryptids on the back and the locations. But we, we never got around to that, but, um, uh, we, dude, we, that, th those would sell like we, people would be all about them for real. We, we think, yeah. we think at some point that might be a, an idea, but anyways, um, we have some ideas storyboarded in terms of other episodes, but it's just, Honestly, it's just, it's the resources because, you know, to film with really high quality cameras, to have all the proper lighting, audio equipment, locations, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot, it's a big investment. And then just the time consumed and then the, the cost of professional editing and sound mastering and all that. Wow. <clears throat> so I don't want to sound negative, but it was a learning process for both Lyle and I, since we kind of produced it and, um, but yeah, hopefully at some point we'll be able to to maybe knock out some more episodes. It was enjoyable. I, I really enjoyed and I think a lot of other people in the community did as well. So, you know, if you're able to make some more, more power to you for sure. Thank you. Um, I'm curious. Um, I like asking uh, a form of this question. Uh, so imagine you're a new a newer cryptozoologist uh, and you can only afford one Bigfoot book and one cryptozoology book for your bookshelf. What, what are you going to save up to buy? If you could only buy those two books for people starting out. And I'm sorry, one was cryptozoology and what was the other? Bigfoot. Oh, Bigfoot. Yeah. That's right. Yep. Um, whew, boy, that's, that is tough. Um, yeah. I've actually ranked 
the top 10 Bigfoot books. Uh, one time uh, for a magazine Lyle writes for Rue Morgue. Oh, sure. A, yeah. They did a Bigfoot special edition magazine and we did uh, I did the 10, I thought the 10 top Bigfoot books of all time in terms of importance. And I think number one would definitely be Sasquatch, the apes among us by John mm -hmm. green, which most researchers view as the, the Bigfoot, one of the Bigfoot Bibles. It's just got so many accounts that, that green amassed and there's so much data and he tells a lot of the history and stuff. So that's an important one. Uh, number two, I would say, I know I was only supposed to go one, so I guess that would be the <laughs> that's one. Fine. If you had to, I'm not going to stop you. <laughs> and, and they're very expensive. So, you know, that's true. Uh, yeah. Unless you get a paperback or a, a reprint. Um, number two is Abominable Snowman Legend Come to Life by Sanderson. Ivan Sanderson, which was a yep. book I checked out of my high school library so many times that they finally just gave it, gave it to me when I graduated <laughs> and said, you're the only one that checks this book out and your name's all through it. So just, I still have that copy. And then, awesome. um, but my, one of my, my personal favorite actually, um, is, uh, Dr. Grover Krantz, um, Bigfoot Sasquatch mm. evidence, um, which is apparently, I think it's Cliff Berrickman's favorite book too. He and I have talked about that. Oh, very interesting. Influential. But I know Krantz, you know, Krantz, you know, he was a brilliant guy. I think he was a little bit vulnerable at times in terms of, yes, there were some things that maybe he was a little overzealous about. But I mean, as far as the way the, the the data is presented in terms of the real evidence for Bigfoot, which is the Patterson-Gimlin film and the footprint evidence, um, he makes a pretty it's pretty important, I think, in terms of grasping that there is a, there is a body of evidence that can be argued for mm. the, as improbable as it may seem to scientists, but you have to do it in a scientific way. So those are, those are three of my top ones. But man, there are so many good ones. I it's mean, tough. There are a lot of really excellent. I don't want to diss any of my, accidentally diss any of my friends and colleagues that have written books because there's there's a right. lot of good ones. As far as cryptozoology, I mean the cryptozoology bible is probably on the track uh, on the trail of unknown animals by Bernard Hubelmans. Which oh is a, yeah, sure. Yep. It's uh kind of a it's the book that launched cryptozoology, so to speak. So it's very important, and it also covers a wide range of cryptids, um, you know everything from the yeti to giant sloths in south america to giant moas and mystery cats and so it's it's oh, awesome you know it's a little dated though because it's it's over half a century old it is so, an older book yeah so i mean some of those things like uh like i think one of the things he really promotes in the book is the the photo of delois ape the 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 ape that was allegedly shot in 1920 in venezuela and then propped sure, up on the yep. box you know it's been in a lot of bigfoot books yep, and yep. could this be a a uh, Bigfoot or a South American ape. And it's, it's now known that that's a hoax or that photo was a hoax. And um, he kind of got taken in who did and <laughs> really, really advocated in his book. Like we have a real photograph oh, of, a, boy, of an yeah. unknown animal here. And it's like, well, actually it was a spider <laughs> well, monkey that, yeah. That, uh, but anyway, anyways, that's a, that's a pinnacle book that most people should have. And um, uh, more recently, I'd say, um, you know, Lauren Coleman's, uh, cryptozoology a to z is a great book Definitely. because it just covers everything and it gives you a real concise you know understanding and definition of each cryptid and so if you really like the diversity of of cryptids around the world that's a good one it's solid i wish there was a second edition of it because there's so much that has changed since that book came out uh in the community and like stuff that could be added but um true do you 
do you have any uh, also advice for upcoming uh, cryptozoologists, researchers, people just getting into the, the field? Yeah, and actually there are a lot of people that reach out to me that want to pursue it, and I always encourage them to, you know, you got to chase your dreams. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, the, the younger people, and I'm always encouraged, I get emails from, uh, you know, young people that are graduating from high school or sure. getting into college, and they want to pursue it. And a, at a younger age, I emphasize the importance of getting a, an actual degree, you know, mm. getting a at least a bachelor's in some you know, zoology, marine biology, anthropology, okay. any, you know, any kind, because that's going to raise the credibility level of cryptozoology so much if suddenly we have, you know, accredited, right. you know, diplomaed researchers out there <laughs> and say, well, I actually, I, I have a degree in anthropology, so I can, um, for older, you know, if, if you can't go back to school, which most people couldn't, once you get, once you get a little older, then uh, what I usually tell them is, you know, find a local researcher or a group in your area because there's mm. many now either most of them are bigfoot groups but there are also groups that investigate dogman or yep you know mothman or you know whatever just various cryptids and then at least that way you can kind of network with other researchers see what you like you see what works for you, you don't have to stick with the group forever you can always branch off later on and do your own thing but at least it, it gives you opportunities to go out and do field work and investigate things and just kind of you know just kind of get a feel for it i like so. that it's it's very solid advice it's it's a, a little similar to uh lyle said something kind of similar is like you don't have to go uh to the pacific northwest become familiar with what's weird in your area and become the expert on it. And I think that's very similar to what you said, but it's smart. I mean, yeah, go to the Pacific Northwest to check it out, but like, you know, be aware yeah. of what's in your area and that, that stuff too. So yeah, eventually. And yeah to, yeah, to your point, I actually have a saying for that, which I call, I refer to that as the home field advantage. And Oh, guess, totally. Yeah. Yeah. For know, real. If, if you can spay, if you can manage to get out to a certain area every weekend or whatever, where you think there might be activity or evidence or something, then that's going to be a lot more feasible than, like you said, trying to jump around the country and figure out, oh, I want to go. Oh, for sure. Is it Lake Champlain or yep. you know, it's just, maybe down the line that can ha that can happen. But, uh, you know, you can always you can become an expert pretty quickly in your in your own backyard. I mean, there's, yeah, like there's I do that with uh, I do that with Van Meter and like sometimes, you know, how we walked out to like the field and you can see the the area where the mine was. Um, I sometimes I go out there and just kind of like stand and watch for a while because like people don't get the opportunity to do stuff like that unless you live nearby. So that's true. Maybe that's someday I'll see something, but whatever, but, um, <laughs> cool so it is a, it's a beautiful spot for sure. So everyone yeah. definitely go to that, uh, check out that festival next year, September. Um, I want to start bringing in some audience questions. Uh, I really appreciate our uh, our listeners and people in the audience. So I'm going to start bringing some in here in the uh, the second part of the show. We've got our uh, a friend here, Mike from Tactical Bigfoot Research. He says, hey, what's Ken's favorite research tool? Oh, gosh. Um, well, <laughs> it's going to be a lot more boring than most people. I don't have a... <laughs> I don't have a drone yet or thermal or any of that stuff. I have access to it when I need it. But um, lately, my favorite thing has been my thousand lumen tactical flashlight, which is just, you know, mm. it's like small and light. But it's like if I'm in the middle of the woods and I hear something, yeah. I can light it up like it's a 
football stadium. And, that's you know, awesome. that's, that's uh, something I've discussed with other researchers because they're, you know, in the past there were people out there and it was like, you heard something, it was right there, but maybe the flashlight just wasn't good enough to get you, you know, to where you could see what you thought you should be seeing in that exactly. moment. Uh, but, you know, you could parallel that, you know, if, if flashlights aren't your thing, then just a good night vision, you know, that, you know, whatever generation you can afford and where you're out there and you can see, you know, the, the, the better quality. Um, and obviously you got to have, always have to have some kind of uh, camera on you, which most people do in this day and age. But, you know, I, I'll say this, I'm, I haven't been the biggest advocate of alleged photographic evidence when it comes to Bigfoot or cryptids. I think sure. it's just, a lot of it is pareidolia and it's too easy for people to fabricate things. And there's a lot of that going on these days, but you know, you use it to photograph the other physical trace evidence. You get angles on a footprint if you can't cast mm -hmm. it, or if there's a, you think there's an interesting formation, uh, you know, or obviously if you have a, a video camera, it's always going to have audio and maybe you'll need to capture, you know, quickly capture some vocalization or something. So, you, you know, you have to have a, the most important tool is something that you allow yourself to document whatever you find exactly. out there when you're out there, whatever exactly. it is. You've got to be able to take it back to a, you know, quote unquote, laboratory setting. And that right. might just be your workbench in your garage where you can kind of sit back and analyze things and objectively and stuff. And that's the kind of the scientific process. So, yeah, those are good, uh, good examples of stuff, stuff to get as a, you know, newer researcher, maybe have a, some sort of like even a, a cheap type of sound recorder, you know, yeah. start with at least something for sure. Um, my friend, uh, Aaron, Hey, strange is so question. You've been headquartered in Texas for a long time. Do you feel central Texas is underappreciated, under investigated regarding its high volume of paranormal phenomena? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate it. That's one of the reasons I moved here 15 years ago to this region. I was living in Houston for 20 years and I thought <clears throat> I started plotting cryptids on my map of texas and there was a big fat cluster right around san antonio <laughs> i was like you had bigfoot sightings big bird chupacabras and then just other weird things and so i thought you know this for whatever reason i can't explain it there seems to be a lot of that activity out here and then of course when i moved out there i learned there was also as you would expect in a, a historic city a lot of alleged haunted locations uh mm you know, fam famous haunts around town, lots of weird like legends and stories. And so, yeah, San Antonio just seems to have that kind of weird, you know, for a city, it, it's got it kind of got that weird vibe in terms of lots of un unusual and unexplained phenomenon happening nearby UFOs. Uh, I mean, the, the headquarters for MUFON, the mutual UFO network, Sure, yeah. the founder lived in Seguin, Texas, just outside of San Antonio up until okay. Uh, when he passed, it was a few years ago, sadly, but so, yeah, it's a, you know, I, I think central Texas does not get a lot of respect or the respect it deserves, uh, in, in terms of, you know, the potential that we have out here to, to maybe investigate some unusual occurrences. What kind of, uh, sources are you going to, like, if you are wanting to find out like, okay, what's the weird <laughs> legends, the weird stories for a certain area? How, how are you doing that research usually? 
Um, you mean around the country or? Or like, uh, let's say, let's say I have a listener and like the listener is like, oh, I live in this town. Like what kind of ways could they figure out? Like what are the weird legends and stories in their area? Kind of like what you did with San Antonio. I got you. Well, probably social media because most Mm -hmm. groups that are organized that are trying to do anything at all have some kind of page or group that you can. Sure. Or a website that you can just Google. Uh, I don't think it would be too hard. For example, if you lived in you know, Iowa, you know, well, maybe it'd be a little harder in Iowa, but you, you, you started looking at Iowa Bigfoot or Iowa cryptids, and then you'd probably run into the Van Meter festival and you'd see exactly. some of the names on there and say, Oh, there's, there's guys in Iowa. So, I mean, yeah, just, you know, if you're going to become a researcher, that's the first step is researching and finding information. And, um, it's all about making, uh, uh connections as well. Yeah. Once networking. you start to make networking connections, that's when you, you hear some stuff as well. Uh, my buddy, Aaron, he's got some solid questions tonight. We're going to put some others in here too, but uh, I'm curious, have you heard about the movement to uh, pick a new nickname for the Texas Chupacabra? Has that come across your, um, uh, plate? Is, is yeah. the new name, the Texas blue dog? Is that the name we're talking about? Or is there a, a, even a different name? There are multiple. <laughs> Wow. They're multiple. Yeah. Paranormality uh, magazine had a, had a poll out and they were uh, trying to figure out a new nickname for the Texas Chupacabra. But do you think, do you think it fits or do you think it might? Uh, it, it, what what are your feelings on that? It, it, it actually, in terms of the Texas animals, and I've examined a half dozen, uh, the remains of a half dozen of these so-called Chupacabras in Texas, seen countless photographs, seen one alive myself, finally, a, a few years ago up near Corsicana. Mm. There are a lot of them out there. Um, the name Chupacabra obviously implies that it is drinking, you know, the goat sucker. It's drinking exactly. blood. And so what I always have to remind people is the name actually describes a ba- an alleged behavior, not a physical description of any kind, which is rather confusing. But there's really no evidence that the Texas Chupacabras uh, have consumed blood. I've okay. spoken to two different ranchers farmers that raise chickens that claim that their chickens were blood left bloodless by these these animals but mm. the you know and i you know i i consider them to be you know fairly credible people but it's just not there's there's no hard evidence of that and it would really be a a, a remarkable adaptation i think the most interesting theory regarding that is um, one of these ranchers, Phyllis Canyon, who's on a lot of the Chupacabra lady from Quero, Texas, who has okay. one of these things stuffed and mounted in her living room. <laughs> nice. Um, and has had DNA tests done and stuff. She had an interesting theory and she works in the nutrition field. And she thought, what if these, these canids, we know they're dogs that have right. a grotesque appearance and, and weird behavior patterns. What if some of these Texas chupacabras, what if they are sickly and craving certain minerals that, that are in yep. the blood, like iron and other mm-hmm. things? That could explain why they're not actually sucking the blood out of a chicken, but maybe they kill the chicken and then they oh, kind of sure. lap up some of the blood mm. and, and bleed it out. Or I don't know. I mean, that's least, very you know, interesting. That's an interesting yeah, thought. It was, for sure. it was kind of an interesting take on it. So it's not, you know, not a true vampire, but mm-hmm. something could drink blood and that would be a weird behavior but it you know not so weird if an animal has a a pathology or something like that so there you go maybe just a misunderstood uh 
a sickly animal. Who knows? Yeah, I'm all so on the yeah. I'm on the record. I'm all for rebranding the Texas version. Hey, there we go. Yeah, that's huge. I'm okay with that. We're taking it to the bank. There you go. Uh, Tate is in the uh, chat. He wants to say, hey, Ken, nice meeting you at last camp this past July. We were chatting about that. Yeah. Um, Good to hear from Tate. Mm -hmm. Friend uh, Connor Bigfoot Anon. um, He says, uh, so I guess there's a place called Helltown. Um, I think it's probably in Florida. I don't know if that rings a bell. If not, uh, do you have any good Florida stories? Um, Florida, do we, again, do we want Bigfoot or are we looking for other cryptids? Um, I think he would be cool if, uh, if you have anything cool cryptid related that comes to mind. I know most people think of like the swamp ape, but, um, yeah, well, I got, Florida's got a lot of cool cryptids. That's why I, I bring it up because it actually, and, and you know, what's f- amazing about Florida, of course, is the habitat is capable of sustaining, mm. you know, for, and for, we have clear evidence uh, based on the number of invasive species that are thriving down there, everything from pythons to Nile crocodiles. But um, uh, I have one account of a truck, a truck driver years ago told me that he was driving down Alligator Alley, which of course is that very southerly cut that cuts across Florida to Miami from, from the western part of the panhandle. And he said that he saw a giant owl standing in the middle of the road one night that oh, was wow. about five feet tall. And he literally had to stop his truck because it didn't fly off. It, it just stood there. And, of course, that's at least twice as big as any known owl. Oh, man. So that's an interesting one. I spoke yeah. to a, la- a lady in the Florida Keys. Her and her mother claimed that they saw uh, a couple of living pterosaurs, small ones flying over pterosaurs, of course, or the, okay. yep. the flying reptiles that lived during the Mesozoic era. Um there's uh, some cool lake monsters up in uh, Florida. There's something called Pinky, uh, which is said to swim around in the St. John's River there uh, near Jacksonville. And Pinky has been described as kind of a weird reptilian, pink, kind of a pinkish colored, fleshy reptilian sea monster. And, um, and then you also have the St. Augustine monster, which is an old story mm-hmm. from 1892, where this giant mass of rotting flesh washed up on. Uh, uh, a beach down there, darn it for the life of me, I can't remember the exact beach, but right off of St. Augustine there. And um, it, this thing weighed like a ton and um, oh, weird. It, nobody could really identify it at first. And this one natural named Wet Web got involved and took photographs and hauled this thing up on the beach and finally took a flesh sample. And he thought it was a giant octopus that would be like 120 feet from the, the tentacle to tentacle outstretched. Wow. So like... Like, you know, which, so it's, that's never been scientifically verified, but it's not impossible. You could have an octopus that big down in the ocean. So Florida has a lot of cool, oh, and one of the best hoaxed cryptids ever, which is something called three toes. Hmm. And uh, this is a three toes out near Clearwater on the beach. Uh, I can't remember if this was in the fifties or sixties, but there was this guy out there stomping around with these giant, he'd made these giant three toed foot footprints and he'd stomp around on the beach. And it got, you know, eventually it turned into a, a monster. It was known as Three Toes. And um, some even alleged it was a giant 15-foot penguin, since that's what the feet looked like. So, <laughs> But ultimately it was proven. I think 
there's a guy in Florida, Rob Robert Robinson, who's kind of gotten to the bottom of that one and saw the giant wooden stompers with the three that's toes. Awesome. So, I, I have read that. Hug. Yeah, it's a good story for it's sure. A great hug because it really threw people. <laughs> it wasn't Bigfoot. I was like, what the time. heck is leaving these footprints on the beach? So there you go, Connor. There's a whole lot of Florida cryptid stories for you. Good stuff there. Uh, let's see. Um, oh, uh, Kevin Morrison says, hey, Ken, what, uh, what, how do you feel? What do you like about Dr. Bender Nagel and his research? Um, any uh, thoughts about that? I know he was a pretty big name in the Bigfoot research field. Yeah, huge fan of, of Dr. John Bender Nagel. I only met him one time. Uh, I think it was back in 2002. Um, we had a little a short chat at a Bigfoot conference. I, he gave an amazing presentation and uh, such a gracious man, mm. uh, very welcoming and open-minded and, but, you know, very brilliant. But, you know, in terms of what he brought to the field, because his specialty was, you know, as a, a, an actual wildlife biologist out in the field and particularly in the area of, you know, British Columbia, where, you know, uh, Vancouver Island and, and some of those areas out there. And um, so he really, his perspective that he brought to the Bigfoot field, which was badly needed, was he looked really analyzing Bigfoot in terms of the behavior patterns that have been reported and fitting those within the paradigm of other great apes. And he did that beautifully in his two books. And anytime he did a presentation or whatever, um, yeah, it was very sad when we lost uh, mm. lost him a, a, a few years ago. I think it was, a you know, everybody just thought the world of, of Bender Nagel and uh, oh, yeah. still do. I mean, we, we still remember his legacy, but he was definitely one of the great ones. He's one of the guys that you, you don't really ever hear anyone uh, talk uh, bad about. And uh, you can, there's uh, still a, a YouTube channel with a, a lot of his uh, work. And, and of course there's his uh, books as well. Uh, those are a little pricey to get a hold of right now, but uh, maybe start with the uh, YouTube um yeah great youtube channel mm -hmm. for sure for sure a friend uh greg from all dot the dot weird says hey ken have you ever been up to canada to investigate cryptids or i'm putting that part in but have you ever been up to canada to investigate if so where yeah actually uh and i was a canadian i was a dual citizen oh. canadian half canadian until i was 23 because my parents migrated from canada so um, I could have retained that if I had moved to Canada at that point, but I, I didn't do that. But I, I, yeah, my point being that I, I definitely feel somewhat Canadian. Um, but the only Canadian cryptids that I've investigated were um, Sasquatch in the Garibaldi mountain range up near Squamish, uh, north mm. of Vancouver, which was one of Rene DeHinden's favorite old haunts that he would go to. Uh, in 2014, I had an opportunity to go to that area and then, investigate uh, a video that a viral video of a Sasquatch alleged Sasquatch walking across a snowy mountain pass. And um, I, I also investigated a lake monster in Eastern Canada called Igo Pogo. Everyone's heard of Ogo Pogo. I was going to say it. From yeah. British Columbia, but no in, way in Ontario, there's one called Igo Pogo that wow. kind of borrowed the name a okay. place called Lake Simcoe. Uh, which is up in Ontario near Barrie and spe specifically in a Kempenfelt Bay where this thing is known as Kempenfelt Kelly. It's a, it's a big lake, but it's mm. rather shallow, but 
there's been like a an Ogopogo type thing sighted there. So uh, I did a a trip up there uh, years ago, and I may be forgetting one or two. Maybe they'll come to me, but I, I think those are the two that kind of to jump to mind. I would love to do more research up in Canada, specifically British Columbia, of course, because you know, in terms of the you know the the habitat. I mean, it's just. Once you get north of Vancouver, it's just crazy how many contiguous miles of just pristine wilderness are there. And you have such rich native traditions regarding the Sasquatch and, you know, Bukwast, Zonaqua, and, and some of those other native names for these creatures. That is awesome. Well, there you go, Greg. That's a lot of solid, good information. And it sounds like Ken is very familiar with uh, some Canadian stuff as well. I'm going to loop back to another question from uh, Aaron. Um, and again, if anyone is uh, new in the chat uh, right now, we're talking to again, Ken Gearhart. If you have any questions for him, we're doing audience questions. Feel free to put those in the chat. But uh, Aaron has an interesting question. Have you heard the theory that the Kelly Air Force Base Sasquatch was an orangutan escaped for the Southwest Research Institute? And what is your opinion on that theory yes i have heard that there's so there is tom slick did found a, a place <clears throat> that was known for a long time as southwest biomedical research institute i think the name may have been altered slightly now but it's uh, it is located on the southwest side of san antonio they've done medical biomedical research there for decades and they have used primates and in fact i know a couple people that work there that work with the primates um so they do have orangutans and chimps and monkeys and different things. So, I mean, it is, uh, the Kelly Air Force uh, Bigfoot sightings are, uh, occurred in uh, August of 1976. And uh, it was really, it was actually on the edge of Kelly Air Force Base. I've investigated the location. Um, it's now Lapland Air Force Base, but there is a lot of wide open wooded areas out there. Um, and Southwest Medical Research is kind of in that general vicinity. So I've, I've heard that. And I believe there was also like a, a an auto junkyard that, you know, a few years ago captured a, some kind of primate on their security cameras, like running through there. But my argument against that, I'd say it's not impossible that something could have gotten out and, and wandered over into that area where people claim they saw Bigfoot. But I'd say the evidence against that is that um, the, at least the first eyewitness described something that was seven feet tall and was walking like a human on two legs. Mm. The second eyewitness, a lady named Rose Medina, who saw one out her window, said it was smaller, about the size of a nine-year-old child. Okay. And so that could be potentially, you know, more feasibly something like an orangutan or a chimp or, or something sure. along those lines. Um, and there was supposedly, there were some other things. There were some human-like, you know, Bigfoot-like prints that were found in some woods around there, allegedly. And there was a giant manhole cover that something had lifted off of uh, uh, and moved. And there were also some cats that were found that had been mangled. So there was a lot of weird stuff going on around that incident. Wow. So I don't know, you know, obviously it was a long time ago, so we don't know for sure. But yes, it is possible that, you know, an escaped ape or, or primate could have contributed to that whole situation. There you go. Good thoughts, good thoughts. Uh, friend, uh, Taiga Raider says, Hey, don't forget Northwest territories. Uh, Nahini national park is like a Holy grail for cryptids. Is that anything that's come up in your radar, that particular area? Oh yeah. Or, oh yeah. yeah. That's uh that's a, 
really, yeah, yeah. I mean, the Nahani Valley, also known as Dead Men's Valley or the right. Valley of the Headless Men, uh, is a pretty remote and, you know, very secluded area with a lot of an era of mystery about it, obviously. But there are two significant cryptids that have been reported from that area, one being the Nukluk, which is either a Bigfoot or a Sasquatch or possibly even described more like a Neanderthal because it's more human-like oh, and it's okay. wearing like Weird. furs and carrying a club. And and then there's also the Wahila, which is a giant white wolf that's been reported from that area that some say is not actually a wolf but something else. So um, there's a, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard it, but uh, there was a, a cryptozoologist named Frank, I want to say Frank Lane, who went up there in the 1970s at the behest of Ivan T. Sanderson mm. and did an expedition. And he actually, for a while on YouTube, there was this two hour long interview with this Frank Lane who talked about the experiences they had up in the Nahani Valley. And, uh, you know, any cryptozoologist would be really interested in it because, you know, he really did go there and do the expedition that people have wow. often fantasized about. Um, I think the worst part about it that I remember is he was talking about like the the quantity and size of the flies there just constantly swarming and biting them. Yeah, I'd love to go there, but yeah, I, don't I don't know. know. <laughs> like, it's swarmed by giant deer flies all the time that are yeah. eating me, you know? No, thanks. I mean, Maine gets pretty wild. Like you got moose flies up there, but oh, yeah. who knows what's in Canada? Uh, let's see. Friend uh, Joe Turry. He was at the Van Meter Visitor Festival too. He says, Hey, Jeremiah, I can watch my American Monster Tour DVD as we speak. Fun. Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah, Thank you, Joe. Cool. Yeah, Joe's done some Bigfoot documentaries and uh, a yeah. really interesting guy. We uh, Big Muddy. I, good stuff. Yep. I, uh, he, I, he interviewed me for something he's working on. So that, Oh, cool. I, yeah, I yeah. eagerly await that, Joe. Uh, here's a question uh, from my friend Tate. Uh, question, does Ken think there's a correlation between, between Sasquatch and sleep paralysis? Has, uh, Tate kind of talks about that in uh, um, Uncovering the Truth of Sasquatch. I'm pretty sure I got that right, Tate. Let me know. But Tate, uh, I, I'm anything... ashamed to admit it, but no, I'm I, I'm I'm afraid I I missed your thing, and so I guess the the concept is that you know people when they're in a and I've experienced sleep paralysis. It's been years, sure. but you do have some pretty wild. You're kind of in this quasi conscious mm -hmm. state where you almost you know there were a couple of times when I was having experiencing sleep paralysis where I thought there was this old ugly hag, this woman that would come in oh, my wow. room and kind of hover over me. And this was mm. years and years ago before I'd really looked into it. And then when I did the research, I found out that it was actually sleep paralysis is actually referred to as old hag syndrome in That's, other parts of the okay. world like Scandinavia, because many people claim to see these ugly old witches that come in and kind of hover over them. I don't know why that is, but um, you know what? Oh, I think man. Tate, Tate, I think Sasquatch, like many cryptids, I think is really a case of composite identity or situation of composite identity. So in other words, Yes, there could truly be a mysterious, unknown hominid running around North America. I think that's that's plausible with all the evidence we've seen. But there are so many other aspects to the mystery in terms of hoaxing, delusion, periodola, people's imaginations, um, you know, maybe some paranormal or, you know, but certainly I think the, the main point of his question, which is very good, is is I think ultimately rooted in our own psychosis or mm. psych, you know, our psychiatric right. and mental state of being, because 
we're not perfect. We're not always perfectly lucid and we are prone like all things to, you know, to be wrong and to misinterpret, think we saw things we didn't really see, or maybe just remember things in a different way. And certainly in, in a situation where you're experiencing sleep paralysis, you know, it seems very real at the time. So it's, you can be very convinced that something was happening that is exactly. not actually happening. So I think that's, exactly. a, that's an interesting, I like the way he's thinking outside the box there. Good job, Tate. Good stuff. Good stuff. Great questions tonight. Um, as we're starting to uh, kind of wrap things up. So I got to ask you one, what has you most excited in the field of cryptozoology? What has your, your, your focus right now? Oh gosh. Um, admittedly, I'm kind of in a little recalibration point right now. Okay. So that's no problem with that. I, I, you know, we, uh, Lyle and I got the American monster tour DVDs out. I did a bunch of public appearances and lectures this year. I've already got a bunch booked for next year. Nice. Uh, I just filmed a, a TV show yesterday, just like a one episode that I, I can't get okay. too much information. And, right. Right. And, uh, also the Loch Ness book came out at the beginning of the year. So, um, and, you know, I had some great expeditions, not only the giant salamander expedition, mm-hmm. but uh, in the end of October, a, a colleague and I went to um, uh, north central Pennsylvania and investigated the Thunderbird traditions up there. It's a are, good video. Which are, thank you. Um, yeah. One thing I'm kind of excited about that hopefully will happen is I've been uh, negotiating with uh, some Australian uh, producers and and. Uh, sponsors to try to get to Tasmania and, and investigate oh, cool. the thylacine this year. Um, obviously, oh, with wow. with the COVID stuff going on, yeah. Australia has been pretty locked down, and so the mm-hmm. fact that I'm from here, and so, but I'm you know I'm hopeful. I'm going to be working on other things, but uh, that would certainly be a a dream come true to have an opportunity to go down there. I really think the oh, thylacine man. is the most viable cryptid we have. I mean. We know they were around at least until the 1930s. There's no reason to think that there couldn't still be a, you know, vulnerable breeding population somewhere. I mean, there's, yeah, we have video of it. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Man, I I hope you do get to go down to that area. That would be a fantastic expedition. So we'll definitely uh, cross uh, our fingers uh, for that. you know, I'm actually, uh, this is, we're going to end with this question. It's pretty solid. Uh, Ashley says, Hey, how often do you find yourself changing your mind? Do you do a lot of introspection in regards to your thoughts and theories about all of this? That's a pretty, pretty deep question. That is a deep question. Yeah. And, uh, at the risk of getting too personal, cause I, I like Ashley and I, I think she's doing a great job doing her she's thing. She's great. Yep. Um, I've, recently discovered i've done some self-discovery in the past couple years while all this madness was going on and i'm Mm. pretty convinced that i am a personality type intr which is basically an introverted ultra analytical researcher so i mean i totally (laughs) you know i i I mean i'm not you know I, i i love my friends and i love being social when i when i do that but i'm i'm basically here in my cave I am just an obsessive researcher and a hyper analytical. And so I haven't really changed my mind. I mean, I, I jump around from cryptid to cryptid in terms of if I'm writing a book or doing a TV show. And I think that's what keeps it fresh for me, Ashley, is just having a variety of different subjects 
Mm-hmm. And you can go through the rotation and say, okay, let's get back on Bigfoot and now Lake Monsters. And that way it doesn't get too stale. So I have that benefit of doing that. But, um, you know, one the two most important qualities that a, a successful cryptozoologist has to have, and this is not me, this is from Bernard Huvelmans and Lauren okay. Coleman and everyone, patience and passion, or you mm. can say passion and patience. I think for most people, the passion is easy to come by. When you start talking about these subjects, it really gets our juices flowing. I mean, we're talking about going out and searching for legendary, you know, monsters. I mean, it's it's an exciting thing to be involved in for sure. So it's it's easy to get passionate, but the patience is is important too. And I think you know, if you stay the course, and I guess that's my message here. Anyone that's real serious about this, just stay the course. You're going to hit some road bumps for sure. Mm. But uh, the people that I've seen right kind of rise to the top or accomplish things are the people that have kind of had a game plan or a strategy and maybe, maybe altered it a little bit here and there, but basically st- stayed the course and, mm-hmm. and stuck to their guns. And ultimately they accomplished great things. So Perfect. hopefully that answered your, your question. I don't know Good if stuff. I rambled too much there, but great question, Ashley, for sure. Yes. Thank uh, you. For people that, um, you know, maybe new to your stuff. Uh, what are, what are the best ways, um, that, uh, people can keep up to date with what you're doing and, um, what new, what new things do, uh, from you, do they, do you want people to check out? How about that? Uh, well, thank you, Jeremiah. Uh, appreciate you having me on. Yeah, great, totally. Like you said, great audience, great questions. Uh, I, I enjoyed, uh, your questions as well. You do a great interview. Um, yeah, uh, you know, I'm all, obviously I'm all over social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I've got a YouTube channel. If people want to check out some of my cryptozoology videos, go to my Amazon author page if you're interested in any of my six books. Totally. And, um, you know, I'm currently appearing on a series called The Proof is Out There on History Channel, hmm. uh, which, by the way, in just a few minutes, they're going to be airing a, a new Bigfoot special with Meldrum and Bill Munns and talking awesome. about the Patterson-Gimlin film. So I don't know. I don't know, but uh, they've done a good sh- job with that show, so it's it should be interesting. So, good stuff, good stuff. So we got, thanks, buddy, from Ashley. Keith Rowland says, "Great question, great answer." And Tiger Raider says, "This is awesome. Thanks so much." But thank you all for hanging out in the chat tonight, uh, and thank you so much, Ken, for hanging out with us and, uh, and chatting cryptozoology for an hour. Uh, we appreciate all you're doing, and uh, keep up the the good work. Have a great night, all. Thank you. Thanks for taking your time out of your busy day and spending some time with us. Uh, Go ahead and uh, subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Leave a review on iTunes, uh, Stitcher, and uh, your preferred podcast platform. And uh, if you have any stories, you can give us an email at bigfootsociety at gmail.com. And again, check out the articles we have and more preferred book lists at bigfootsocietypodcast.com you can always go to instagram at bigfoot society and we have a tiktok now it gets pretty crazy there bigfoot bigfoot.society at bigfoot.society if you'd like to support the bigfoot society podcast and help us keep the lights on head on over to patreon.com forward slash the bigfoot society and for a low cost per month you can get your very own bigfoot society membership card in the mail we'll see you there
Thanks again for taking your time listening to the Bigfoot Society podcast. We'll see you next week. Uh, Next Saturday will be a new episode. And also, if you want to take part in the live taping of the episode and put your questions in there for the guest, just remember, subscribe to the Bigfoot Society YouTube channel and hit the bell so you don't miss out on any of those episodes. Thanks again, all, and we'll see you next time. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Bigfoot Society. Any content provided by our guests are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone. Thank you.